This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and this is the bonus episode for the current volume. What is that, volume six? Volume six. Uh, yes, this is the bonus track, and so you haven't had homework for this one. Uh, it will be a bit of a surprise to... Well, it'll be a surprise because unless you've looked at the title of the episode, you won't know what it is. But also, probably a surprise in terms of what we're doing. And that is, in this episode, we are going to uh, listen to and talk about Ingve Malmsteen's debut, Rising Force which is not the sort of album that we've covered uh, before and I'm sure probably would be a surprising choice to most of our listeners. But for some, the best bonus they could ever receive, right? For In terms of an episode, <laughs> like if you, if you love guitar, if more is more to you, then this is the episode for you. Yeah, indeed. Less is more. It's impossible. That it's makes a, no sense. I, I, really, I wrote it down so we can read it together yeah. after. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so going to be an interesting episode. Yeah, we, we always like to do something fun for the, the bonus tracks. You know, we've done things like the Probot album, and last volume we did the um, Stormwitch album, Stronger Than Heaven, which, again, you know, took I think took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, and so the, the justification behind this one is this is mostly an instrumental album. There are two non-instrumental tracks on here, but it is mostly an instrumental album and instrumental albums honestly are hard to talk about because you can't you know there's no vocalist performance there's no lyrics to focus on um yeah they're just they're difficult and so they're not something that we normally cover but if you're gonna do an instrumental album this has got to be a contender you know this has got to be one of the top contenders for what you're going to talk about uh and obviously Ingve himself is a very interesting character so yeah, I just thought it would be fun to to do this one as our bonus for this volume. I would argue that we would be remiss if we did not cover the greatest guitar player of all time in this show. That is a show that so much of what we talk about is focused on guitar. So that's true. Uh, you know, that's I feel true. like it's love Ingve, hate Ingve. If there's a mountain of guitar players, Ingve is not standing on the top of it. And so, and we could talk about whether or not people feel that that statement is true or not. But um, yeah, I feel like over the life of this show, there had to be an episode. And I had to double check, like when you first brought it up, I'm like, did we not cover Ingve, Or uh, did I just have it on my list? Cause he was on my list for right, right. Uh, an eventual episode and um, not, wouldn't have been this album, but I'm so glad that this is the album that we're doing. Well, that's the thing, you see. I mean, you're right. It's hard to do a show like this and not talk about Ingve at some point. But honestly, like, his other, the other stuff he's done, his other projects where, you know, it's not sort of uh, his, I mean, Rising Force is not the name of the band here, but it kind of is, you know, it's a thing that he's had going since he was a teenager, really. Um, I just not really something that certainly I would pick. To talk about maybe you would you didn't have um, Steeler or alcatraz on your list yeah. for because <laughs> um, i listened not. to both of those this week in preparation so uh, i'll bet you did yeah, yeah no strange strangely enough those are not on my list so from my point of view yeah if we're going to talk about something it's got to be one of his mostly instrumental solo mm-hmm. albums and if you're going to talk about one of those then this debut again surely has to be the one yep. so uh so yeah yeah we are agree wholeheartedly 
All right. So before we get to that, uh, let's do some follow up. We have a new patron since last episode, JH. Thank you very much, Jay. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the fold, to the family. Um, I have some personal news, which is that uh, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I think it was a couple of episodes anyway, that I have a new book out called The Dog Sitter Detective, a, a humorous, cozy crime murder mystery. Um, and since the last episode, it won an award. Holy which, crap, dude. Congratulations. Right. <laughs> yeah, which uh, nobody was expecting. Um, the publisher put me, they told me they were entering the book for the award. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And then completely forgot about it because I did not <laughs> for a moment expect to win. Um, and yeah, like it won. And this is an award. It's called the Barker Book Award. So they're awards for dogs in literature. But the, the award I won was for fiction. Uh, not just crime fiction, but all fiction, which is just amazing. I, I still kind of can't believe it. So awesome. Um, so uh, yeah, so the next edition of the book is going to have a big Hell sticker. Hell yeah, on it's going to have that. Yeah, is it going to be embossed, like foil embossed? On the, <laughs> you got to at least have a, a couple of uh, jackets with that on it. So that congratulations, <laughs> man. I mean, the the for anyone who's known you over any length of time, the different genres that you've written in, the different mediums that you've written in, like and found success in every single one of them is just so awesome to see, and it's really heartwarming to see that cozy crime is a place where you have made such an impact since this book debuted and i mean you were just talking about you're going you're going to another uh conference festival coming up uh for crime writers it's just it's so great to see so congrats man i love it yeah thank thank you man yeah i mean you're right i'm very fortunate i've had you know some success in a lot of different areas but this is the first award i've won since my very first book like I won uh, the best horror in the Independent Publisher Awards at Book Expo America for Frightening Curves in 2001, and that's the last thing I. That was my first book, and it won an award. And I thought, well, here we go. This is how it's going to be from now on. And then for the next 22 years, <laughs> well, I mean, that's I such a great nothing. point, dude. I mean, it's into your you know earlier comment, right? It's like it's not something you ever expect. You you do the work, you put it out there. You're hoping that the audience for that enjoys it and it resonates with people but so much of writing is also writing for yourself right in that oh, and totally, feeling yeah. like you've done the characters justice and you've done the story justice and everything in the award piece especially when you're not expecting it is such a it's just such a the best possible surprise right i mean almost as as uh, awesome as like an ingve bonus episode but like just this nice <laughs> surprise of the thing that you didn't expect and um but not surprising to me that you have been recognized and certainly long overdue for your body of work, but so happy that in this genre now you're, you are uh, getting the recognition you deserve. No, oh, thank you, man. That's very kind of you. Um, and so the other thing I wanted to follow up on was from the previous episode. So we did the um, encore episode. That was mm -hmm. our last episode doing Paradise Lost's album uh, One Second. And I just wanted to note, this did come up in the comments, uh, which I, I know we'll comments, get to in a yeah. moment, but I just wanted to highlight one thing, which I'm not sure if it was in the comments, actually, or if it was in an email, I can't remember now, but either way, Todd Zender, who's a long-time listener of ours, uh, says that what he would classify Paradise Lost's commercial phase as is arena goth. 
was listening to Draconian okay. Times at the time. And I think, I personally think that is a much more accurate term than goth hair metal. Well, <laughs> I don't know that it's more accurate. I think it, I think you don't Certainly mind. more palatable. You don't, it's more palatable. There you go. You got it. So I think uh, I'll, I will accept that, that it's a more yeah. palatable uh, thing. I, I like, like both I like of them. I think, yeah. I say, you know, use whatever one you think fits best. <laughs> But yes, so that was our previous episode, if you recall. That was the uh, the encore episode to finish off the regular tracks of the volume. So, uh, Brian, tell us about the reaction to that episode, because right. we had a lot of comments. Dude, we had 144 comments wow. on this episode, which I will not read all of, but I'm going to uh, read some of them. Uh, Roland said, Woohoo, I spent a long time being conflicted over this album. Then I simply forgot about it for 20 years, eager to find out what you make of it. Uh, which is interesting, right? Because if you're a fan of the band and it's just one of those ones that you don't go back and revisit, right? For whatever reason. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, I think the, said, other thing, the other thing there as well is that there was a time, as I say, they never really hit big in the US. So it's, e- it's easy to kind of, for American listeners to overlook that. But here in the UK, there was a brief period of like a run of maybe three albums where Paradise Lost were big news, where they were like cover of Kerrang! and Metal Hammer material. It didn't last very long, <laughs> and you know many would say that they kind of uh, unfortunately took themselves out of that picture by going away from metal and doing the electro stuff. But as a result, there's a lot of people picked up albums like Draconian Times and One Second who weren't necessarily Paradise Lost fans in the same way that I am, but just metal fans who went, "Oh yeah, this is a popular band that everybody's raving about. I'll buy that album," but then never, you know, continued listening to them. So this was Kenneth's album, and I think his kind of play-by-play comments over the course of listening to the episode were my favorite comments <laughs> of the thing. So his first one was, Reality Bites. I knew Brian might go full heel turn on this album, but that hurt. And so I was like, but I liked it. And he said, I had to stop after the shock. I'll get back to the episode tomorrow. <laughs> so he had to, <laughs> had to take a break. And then he got to the hair metal for goths uh, and uh, just blew him out of the water so yeah it, it sounds like he had a good time listening to that episode um we were having a conversation during that episode about the politeness of the community so david had chimed in and said thrash it out is the most polite page on facebook i think i'm one of the people who would disagree with people most on the page very vocal about my dislike about certain bands but everyone is very open to various tastes it really is the most social page on facebook too anthony i think i need to get to the paradise lost i, I think i need to get the paradise lost book for myself now um, yeah, it really is an excellent book, yeah. Let's see. Uh, they have uh, Todd said they haven't even gotten to track one. Already the cheese gauntlet has been thrown down. This should be a good episode. <laughs> uh, let's see. Phil liked the hair metal for Goss. He said, I nearly spit my coffee out when Brian said this in the image of Kenneth's face. Hearing this came to mind, and I did spit my coffee out. And then as Brian kept saying it, I'm like, oh, now he's just trolling Kenneth. However, I wonder if Brian isn't wrong, as evidenced by me liking this album a fair bit. So, uh, you know, my comment stands. Uh, Phil also said, I'm currently on a deep dive with Paradise Lost. It's taking me longer than expected to get through their catalog, but damn, the sheer volume of albums they've put out over their 40-plus year career is impressive. I just wanted to echo Brian's surprise with how different this album sounds compared to Icon and Draconian Times. I went back to their first album a couple months back and had the same reaction. I was like, wait, am I not remembering what Paradise Lost sounds like? Their first album sounds like a doomy death metal album. And that was not what I remembered Icon sounding like. And now having listened to this hair metal for Goth's album, it's clear Paradise Lost is a band 
not willing to sit still with their music. I can respect that, even though I fear I'm not going to like some eras of this band's discography. That's all entirely fair. Yeah, as as I said, uh, you know, during the episode, they are a band who has just changed continually, even in this later period. You know, because they are still releasing albums at a much slower rate than they used to, but they are still releasing albums. And even in this later period, although they have re-embraced the metal and all of that, and, you know, Nick started growling again a few years ago and all that sort of thing, um, every album is still different. Like, you could still take an album from 10 years ago and their most recent album and go, wait, is this the same band? Um, Because they just keep changing and evolving. Uh, Ian said, Jesus Christ, in exact unison with you, Anthony, when I said that it had been eight al- eight years since we covered the oh, yeah. last Paradise Lost album. Uh, yeah, I mean, I try not to think about that again. It has been, although we are at the point, as evidenced by the first conversation we had on this episode, that I have to check the master list that I asked you to share with me of oh, yeah. <laughs> albums that we've done. Because even like putting together suggestions for like next volume and stuff like that, I'm like, wait did we not do an album from them yet? And I have to go right. back and look at the list. That's we're now at that point, which I guess is a good thing. Um, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Greg said I was a late starter to TO and missed the icon episode. It was icon and, and the seals, the sense EP that got me into paradise lost. And I saw them on the icon tour with die corrupts supporting. I always wondered what their, uh, I always wondered what their later albums, if the time on the road with die corrupts and uh, Jürgen Engler had influenced their sound. Which is an interesting thought, yeah. I genuinely don't know. Uh, I do know that, you know, certainly uh, Riss Fulber from Frontline Assembly became their long-standing producer for a time uh, after the one-second period, you know, when they sort of started getting back into the metal sound. Uh, he was the, He produced, I think, three albums for them, and they had a very, very good working relationship with him, and he was a fan of the band. So uh, there may be some industrial uh, techno influence there. I'm not sure but they, they certainly i don't think they've talked specifically about decrops uh simon said such a great album guys and good pick kenneth better than what i chose for the poll back when this came out i don't think i was going to be into this as i was 17 18 and too busy with grunge sepultura and prodigy but as a 44 year old as of last month happy belated birthday uh and with some graying around the sides this is just great i think we were too spoiled with 90s metal amazing decade of music we'll be buying this album very soon for more than three lessons, which is good to hear. Yep. Well, and I've said that many times, haven't I? You know, your your decade is the eighties, mine is the nineties for sure. I know. I was immediate. I was going to immediately make a comment to that because I have that like eighties defense force, uh, you know, trigger. <laughs> but but you know what? Uh, it was so funny. I was talking to my daughter about this the other day. She is now um, into, and she's college age into the same type of like alt rock stuff that was floating around when I was in college in the early nineties. And it's just so funny to hear that stuff again in a, in a playlist or something like that. It's stuff that I was a little more dismissive of at the time, but it's so of an era now when I listen to it, that it actually, I do have nostalgia for it, even though I didn't before. So just, um, and stuff that everything old is new again. Yeah. It's just wild. Um, so, so, there is such there is definitely a definitive sound of the 90s and i can respect that more now i was so against it at the time because it was just a big change from you know what i was well cuz it killed into. off your favorite yeah, yeah basically um <laughs> cer- certainly in terms of mainstream attention 100% like it definitely 
we, we were no longer the flavor of the day. Oh, let's see. Charles Andre said, oh man, I don't mind Paradise Lost so much, but this album sounds terrible to me. Kind of feels like a Creed or Monster Magnet side project at times. <laughs> but that is harsh, man. Uh, I, mean, I don't mind Monster Magnet, but Creed? Come Oof. on, man. Listen, <laughs> don't make me defend Creed, because I will. Um, <laughs> but then they evolved into Alter Bridge, which I think is even better. So, uh, 100% with Brian on these songs sounding like a bar scene background song in a cheap horror movie. Uh, or maybe something Kevin, our 15-year-old DM, would put on during a Vampire the Masquerade game when, <laughs> <laughs> when we got to Elysium and there were long descriptions of vampire strippers. Uh, sorry, Anthony, maybe next time. Uh, he said, edit, on second listen, there are a couple of good tunes, especially Soul Courageous, but the electro post-grunge is just killing me. Uh, well, that's good. So that was only two listens in. I Maybe he came around fully On the at third, some point. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, let's see. Dave said, I discovered Paradise Lost with Icon and absolutely fell in love with the album, so much so that I went out and got Lost uh, Paradise and Gothic. I really liked Gothic and liked Draconian Times, but lost touch with the band after that. I only recently came back to them after people here recommended Medusa and Obsidian. So I expected to not like this album based on some of the discourse surrounding it, but to my surprise, I dug it. Is it heavier than the other stuff I loved? No, but it still feels like Paradise Lost to me. There's still a sense of epic, gothic grandeur. It's just done in some different and interesting ways. And I feel like anybody who was surprised they did something different wasn't paying attention to what the band had done. Because as Anthony said, they started off as a death metal band. The discussion was a lot of fun too, especially since it felt uh, like sort of an inverse of much of the episodes of this volume, where there were <laughs> lectures in Professor Brian Latendry's Hair Metal Appreciation 101. Uh, it made for a nice closer, and I'm excited to see what you pick for the bonus track. Well, you should be excited, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, let's see. Let me scan down the list here. Uh, Andrew said, I enjoyed this super 90s, but I'm 50, so that that's okay. Uh, it was a lot more eclectic than I was expecting, and I quite liked when they leaned into the synths a little. Felt a lot like darker end Depeche mode in these moments, helped by Holmes and Gahan not sounding a million miles apart. Uh, not metal, but there's still a heaviness to it. I'll check out their Electronica album after this. Two things I should say. Disappear should have been the closer, and how you guys hear Faith No More and Another Day is baffling. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Samuel said, great album. I thought this was a metal podcast, though. I'm a bit confused. Oh, uh, the more you listen, you'll find that we're we're all over the map. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tortoise said, I don't remember which song in the album it was when I heard it, but I swear I heard the tone and tune to Particle Man, and now I can't unhear the band now called They Might Be Sad Giants. <laughs> which is also good. There, I'll tell you, there's some good... Uh, there's some good memes that came out of this one. There's some good roasting going on in this yeah. thing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, also, I'm pretty sure I mentioned to Anthony that at some point, that every part of my musical taste should be like, at some point, that every part of my musical taste should be like, nope, but for heck's sake, they are so good. It does truly remind me a lot of Stabbing Westward, Nine Inch Nails, and weirdly Throwdown. Uh, a plus on the discussion and the album pick. Yeah, well, I liked Stabbing Westward's early stuff, so yeah, I'll go along with that. Were they early 2000s or were they 90s? No, they were nineties, okay. dude. You, bro, you say that like I would. <laughs> that that is, stabbing westward. There's one song from them that I would recognize. What was the video? Not a band on your radar. What yeah. was the video? What was their really popular song? Uh, 
Now you're asking. I can't someone, actually... someone will put it in the comments. There was, there was like, I just remember them kind of exploding on the scene with a song that was super popular and in heavy rotation on MTV. That, so do I. And now I'm trying to, I'm struggling to remember. And what it, was it was pretty heavy, if I remember correctly. It stabbed uh, westward. It felt like it was stabbing westward. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not sure. We'll get there. Somebody somebody get that. Uh, Daniel said, really fun episode, as always. Really struggled to get into this album, though, as the vocals immediately turned me off. It's really funny that you mentioned that Nick uh, had started taking vocal lessons, because that's str- what struck me here was exactly what I felt about James Hetfield's performance on St. Anger. He sounded like he had absolutely no conviction in what he was singing. Now, it's interesting that there was a huge amount of band turmoil in both cases, but I think really inconsistent uh, breath control and support is the culprit here. Maybe it's hard to go from a vocal style that's tight and forced to one that's more modulated, but in both cases sounded like singers who are still very much works in progress. Yeah, which is fair. I think I replied to that and said, like, you know, work in progress is is absolutely Uh, fair. He had more to say on that, too, so you can go and dive a little bit deeper in that. But interesting point on that front. Yeah, as I, as I said there, I'll, ju- I'll just say to anyone else who's thinking about that, like the follow- the album following it, which I mentioned on the episode, which is called Host, that was their full-on Electronica album, where there's almost no guitar sounds whatsoever, um, is where Nick really came into his own as a singer. And yes, there's no question that he's, it's probably his best vocal performance, just, you know, purely as a, as a singer. Uh, and I think he certainly regards it as his best performance. I still like his vocals a lot on even the albums before that including one second obviously but if you are of a mind to listen to somebody with a lot more technical control <laughs> over their voice then host is, is more of an album for you for sure uh Raphael said i've been listening to a paradise lost one second and listening to the podcast in bits and pieces and oh man the dark wave is strong with this record i love <laughs> it i pretty much was hyper focused on metallic hardcore during this time in my life so i wouldn't have given this the time of day the vocals remind me a bit of the nine of 90s hepfield at times and that kind of threw me off with the music still enjoyable have you heard of unto others portland band that may give this uh vibe with a touch more guitars and early misfits type of punk uh, so there you go. That's one for people to check out on two others. Uh, JD said, nothing here for me as far as the album goes, just doesn't hook me. I agree with Brian that if this came on the radio, I just think it had been recorded in the recent decade. Uh, as an unintended side effect, though, I'm now listening to the Depeche Mode discography from a historical perspective, <laughs> and we'll probably follow it up with all other uh, Vince Clark projects. And let's see, Neil said, man, Brian was on fire this episode. I love Icon, but bounced off this for the most part. And that's a lot of comments, but not all 144. So if you're missing any of those, or you want to dive deeper on any, or you want to respond to any, then go to the Facebook page, man. That was a great discussion to be had after that episode. And uh, kudos to Kenneth for uh, having it be the pick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you again, Kenneth. Uh, And thank you to everyone who nominated, obviously, all of our patrons who nominated in that poll. Uh, if you want to become a patron and get a chance to take part in those polls and also, you know, get maybe randomly picked for a backstage pass episode, that sort of thing. Uh, remember, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge. Uh, minimum is only one dollar an episode and we charge per episode, not monthly. So, you know, if we don't put an episode out in a month, you don't get charged. Um, and that helps us keep the show running. It helps, you know, pay for our server costs, domain name costs, uh, when we have to buy an album sometimes, you know, if it's uh, something that is nominated by a listener and we don't own it, you know, we have to go and buy it and it, it just helps pay for all of those sorts of things and, yeah, helps defray our costs, which are only going up 
in this day and age. It's the world we me. live in. It really is. Um, so yeah, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out for that. And if you want to join the Facebook group, that is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And uh, yes, join the, the very friendly, opinionated, but friendly uh, yeah. metal community. Which is, which is great, right? Because people are just really passionate about the things that they love and sometimes the thing that's, that they don't love so much, but they're nice about sharing the things that they don't love. And, yeah. you know, you don't have to be a Patreon member to go join the Facebook group. It's no. open to everyone. Uh, and you can claim your bingo card over there that Samuel will oh, put yeah. together. So feel free <laughs> to print that out. And there's uh, a lot of well-known uh, tropes, I guess, at this point. Phrases from, and idiosyncrasies. Yeah, and, that yeah, you can yeah. uh, pick up. Uh, we can't think too much about those because then we'll just uh, we'll get too focused on them. But I, uh, it, it's all good natures and they're natured. And there were some ones on there that really made me laugh. So. Um, which I'm sure there will be a bingo in this episode. So if you have your bingo card ready and you do play through this episode as we go through, um, if you get a bingo, put it in the comments of this episode. I wouldn't be surprised if there's already been one. <laughs> and you'll get a Marvel no prize. <laughs> We've only been recording for like 20 odd minutes and I there's probably be already either. at least one line. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's talk about Ingve Malmsteen. Let's do it. Uh, just do it. And I mean, surely, is there anybody out there who hasn't heard of this guy? Um, I suppose the, the younger crowd. Well, I think possibly. it's depending on age, maybe, for sure. Yeah, because maybe, maybe. It would only be memes at this point, I think, that <laughs> that you. And I, I, that's unfortunate, even though we're going to talk about, I think, a lot of the memes over the course of this um, episode. But yeah, I think, you know, going back to the 80s. He was, I mean, he was just unlike anyone else. And I think the closest thing I see nowadays is is the Squizgar from Death Clock, to me, feels like he's almost 100% based on Ingve. And so if you watch that show and you enjoy that show, I, I think it's also been talked about that there was a, a someone from another band that influenced the creation of that character. But like I when I watch Metalocalypse, Squizgar is Ingve to me, by like so dead on. Um, just a guy who in every conversation that is had with him, um, in his playing and everything that you see from him is seemingly pushing himself and believes himself to be the greatest guitar player that has ever graced this earth. I mean, that, that to me is Ingve in a nutshell. And in the eighties, when he first came on the scene and I was trying to think what was the first time that I saw I was going to ask you that. Yeah, when did you first I, I, come across Ingve's music? I think it was um, I'll See the Light Tonight from the Marching Out album. I think it was the video. Because what was this was 84, right? For, for uh, Rising, Rising Force. Force. So I think yeah. Marching Out was 85, if I'm not mistaken. And looking, I just remember seeing that video. And then, because there were other videos too, there was, there was uh, Heaven Tonight and stuff like that. But I think it was that, um, or hearing that song somewhere else, but I want to say it was MTV. What he was doing when, he, when this music first kind of burst on the scene, no one was doing that. I don't think, at least it, it, over here in the States, in terms of seeing some of these uh, metal bands that were coming and stuff like that, like he was otherworldly. There was like guitar shredders and then there was Ingbe. And there was no like there was a separation between 
guitar players and Ingve. Um, I just remember my friends and I, like, I distinctly remember my friend John and I just being like jaw droppingly blown away by this guy's guitar playing. Um, yeah. So I think it was, I think it was MTV. I think it was, um, I'll see the light tonight and just like, who is this guy? Holy freaking crap. How can anyone play? that fast with that level of complexity it was just like and accuracy and accuracy just mind melting um nowadays you go on youtube and you're seeing some (laughs) seriously like 15 year old -old kids like just their their the efficiency of their picking just the level of accuracy like there are so many amazing guitar players out there today but man when Ingve came on the scene and when he came into sort of mainstream attention, it was Ingve and then it was everybody else. That's how but, I perceive that time period. No, I, I agree with you. But it's like I've said before, um, there is somebody has to raise the bar. Yep. Once the bar has been raised, well, then that's the that's the bar. That's the whole, you know, that's how it works. That's the whole point. And we see this. I mentioned this in the context of drummers with like uh, Dave Lombardo. Um, you know, like nobody was drumming like he did on those early Slayer albums. And then within a few years, everybody was drumming like he did and making it look easy. Whereas, you know, he always made it look very, very hard. (laughs) And I'm sure it was hard for him because nobody had done it before. Um, that's just how it works. Yeah. Guitar players are the same. They're all, you know, vocalists. Growls, look how sophisticated growling has become and harsh vocals have become over the last 20, 30 years when in the 90s, they were still very kind of new. Uh, everybody had a different technique for doing it. Some of them had no technique and, you know, completely destroyed their voices as a result. Um, whereas now, there are entire, again, yeah, you go on YouTube and there are entire, like, courses of how to do harsh vocals in a way that, you know, does no harm to your throat whatsoever, no harm to your voice, no harm to your throat. You know, people can switch in and out of it at a moment's notice. Uh, it's incredible. And it's the same with any instrument. And it is the same now with guitars. But as you said, what's crucial to remember in the context is that in 1984, nobody was playing no. like Ingve, and nobody could play like Ingve. Now, again, come a, a few years later, you know, everybody went, holy shit, the bar's been raised, and a lot of other people then could. Um, but he was the first. You know, somebody has got to raise that bar, and, and he did it. And love or hate him, again, and plenty of people do hate him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but you can't deny that he was that, he was that innovator. You know, he was the first guy to go, hey, let me show you what I can do, and really, uh, you know, put his money where his mouth is, as it were. Well, and I think it's also important, because you know, there may be people in the comments or whatever who are like, yeah, but have, haven't you heard this person or like this person was playing at the time? When we say raising the bar, I don't want to speak for you, Anthony. What I'm talking about is like in the mainstream consciousness of yeah, people yeah, who are totally. listening to that genre of music, right? And so, yes, I'm sure that there were players or bands um, in a particular year or on a particular album or something where you could point to that and say, well, this person was playing even faster and, and more complex and more accurate than what Ingbe was doing. But again, when I turn on MTV and I'm listening to a Motley Crue song or even an Iron Maiden song or even, you know, a more proggy band, but then Ingve comes on 
it's like what he was doing. It's another level. It's a, it's another universe in some, like it was (laughs) like, it was mind blowing at the time. And, you know, my experience with Ingve's music was essentially that those things like, uh, I'll see the light. Like when I think of Ingve, this is, a a guy whose music again for me and i don't remember what band i said about it maybe it was rap that i was talking about but like the greatest hits this is a greatest hits guy if you go listen to the greatest hits of ingve the first two songs that you're going to get on any greatest hits album are going to be the first two songs on this album that we're going to talk about in a little while here and so but in my experience i have found that it gets overwhelming at a point and the level of listenability or or because uh, i don't want to say quality because the playing is always immaculate but just the music itself and, and how it resonates with me it's just not consistent enough throughout an entire album to have any of his albums really stick with me in a place where i would be like oh if i'm naming my top 30 my favorite 30 my favorite 50 you know something like that that in a whole album would be and I would say now after having really spent time with this album, I would probably put this album as the one I pick. Even though if you had asked me before this, there's no way um, that I would have picked this album. But but that but how much of that is just because you've spent so much time now with this album and listening to it with a you know a sort of slightly different analytical mindset for this episode? Because that's the thing with again with instrumental albums this is one of the things that makes them difficult is that unless you because they're they often musically they're often more complex Uh, for sure you know regular albums because they have to be because there are no vocals and also because there are no vocals to kind of easily grab onto you really have to listen to them like fully with your full attention in order for them not to kind of slide into the background that is one of the problems with and again it's one of the reasons why we don't cover them a lot on the show because it is difficult. You've got to really sit there and listen fully, yes. with, like I say, with your full attention and to an instrumental album. Now, when you do that, because I, I, there are a lot of instrumental albums that I love, and when you do that, it can become an album that you seriously, seriously love because you've given it that attention. But if you don't, even some albums, some instrumental albums that I will and many classical albums, and that's another point that we'll bring up again later, uh, that I will happily put on. I think, oh, I feel like listening to that. But I put them on and then do something else. Yeah. You know? Uh, And they do kind of almost slide into the background. That's not a slight on them. It's just the difference between, you know, it doesn't have the human voice to to hook you. To me, uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you just said. And... You're talking about in the 80s when this comes out, and you're talking about like rock and metal, right? You're talking about there is a structure to the genre. And when you listen to a lot of what Ingbe's doing, he's playing musical pieces versus songs. Yes. And so, and really the vocals is what, from a definition standpoint like a a song is a short poem or other set of words set to music meant or meant to be sung right and so we're listening to rock and metal songs and here comes this guy who's playing musical pieces and putting 
eight of them on an album. And there's so basically using that definition, there's two songs on this album and there's six musical pieces, right? To accompany those two songs. And to your point, you have to approach that with a different mindset because you don't have those vocals to ground you. And so you have to, so then it puts to me a lot of emphasis on like, what is the theme that I'm hearing in this song? Is it a strong theme? Is it one that I feel like the musician is coming back to enough to keep me grounded in this song? Or do I get lost because it's not grounded in this theme or it doesn't revisit it maybe until the end of the song again? And so I've kind of lost my way in the song. It is much harder to keep you in the piece when there aren't vocals to provide that level of structure. And so... And what's amazing about this album is the the pieces are pretty much all great when you spend time with them. Well, so I'll push back a little bit on that because I think one of the things that makes this album better than, you know, frankly, many other sort of similar uh, guitar-focused instrumental albums is that I think Ingve can write a good instrumental song. And I would... I understand what you're saying about the difference because obviously they're not sung in a, a you know a technical sense. Um, but I think the way he can puts these pieces together, I agree with you that there are lots of pieces, but those pieces are assembled into songs, and there is a structure to most, not all. We'll come to that when we do track by track. Most of the tracks on this album, I think the pieces are assembled and structured in a way that they do hang together as songs, even though there are no vocals. It struck me a lot as I was listening to this, actually, like um, I've mentioned before, I listened to a fair amount of sort of, you know, prog rock from the 70s and a lot, and uh, the 80s, actually. And a lot of prog uh, bands will do long songs that have multiple pieces. You know, they'll, they'll do a suite, essentially, that has yeah. several different sections. And sometimes, you know, section four might return a musical motif uh you know a light motif or something might run through the whole thing or they'll play a part from the first section just to remind you and you know give it that elliptical shape that's all stuff that i love and Ingve actually does that quite a lot on this album and that to me actually does help bring it all together and make them feel more cohesive as songs rather than just yeah pieces and again it's you know if Ingve has said many, many times, right from the start of his career, and he was ridiculed for this a lot <laughs> when he first uh, came on the scene, but he has been consistent, and it's true, in that classical composers are a huge influence on him. And as a, a listener of classical music myself, I can hear that. Oh, you know, it's absolutely, absolutely. apparent to me. You know, he worships Paganini, um, and you can you can tell. Like the very first track on this album has elements that are worthy of Paganini in some ways. Um, so, and, and a lot of classical music is put together in that same way, whether it has suites and sections and leitmotifs and callbacks and what have you. And his stuff is composed in a very similar way. So, yeah, like I say, I understand what you're saying about the sort of technical difference between, you know, it's not a song because there's no voice, so it can't be sung. But I do think he's actually better than a lot of similar, you know, guitar soloist musicians. Uh, I agree. At constructing songs and making things feel more cohesive and more like a whole piece a hundred percent and as i've said before like i only think labels are helpful 
in terms of accessibility and not keeping yeah. so like if that's not a helpful you know like i'm not saying that i i don't define it as a song if it doesn't have vocals in it but that, that like i was searching for the other day like a way to kind of talk about um some of this stuff because i feel like overall where i have enjoyed ingve's work the most is when he is paired with a singer and yeah. there is this great mesh of vocals i think on places on this album the keyboards are such a good complement to what he's doing that 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 dynamic is provided but in general it's when he works with a great vocalist and there is a bit more structure to to uh, a bit more traditional structure i guess would be um what i'm thinking of that i have enjoyed his stuff more which is why if you had asked me like hey what album would you sort of pick it probably would have been trilogy right if i had to if I had to pick one, let's see. Yeah, with Mark Bowles, you know, because I would say I just made a list off the top of my head of like great Ingve songs with vocalists, right? So I'll see the light tonight. We talked about with Jeff Scott Soto. Uh, you don't remember. I'll never forget with Mark Bowles off of Trilogy. Liar off of Trilogy with Mark Bowles. Queen in Love off of Trilogy with Mark Bowles. Um, Joe Lynn Turner, Hold On, and Joe Lynn Turner, Heaven Tonight. Right. Those are just like ones I could think of, like if I was just thinking of what my sort of, um, you know, most listened to Ingve songs are or something like that. Right. And so those are the things that I tend to gravitate toward. And then his truly instrumental songs become um, a complement to those. And so when it's the other way around, where it's mostly instrumental and then there's one or two songs that feature vocals, that's harder for me. And so this album initially was harder to get into, but I also feel like this album has his best intro- instrumentals on it. So the overall package is much better. And to your point, he does such a good job of making those uh, non-vocal songs compelling that this album really is, I think, underappreciated. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that I kind of for this album at least i kind of feel the opposite way in that yes i actually think that most of the instrumental songs on this album are much more successful than the two yep. with vocals um but i think we will we'll agree on one of the two <laughs> well that's funny it's funny you should say that because yeah one of them in my opinion is much more successful at that than the other mm. um i and it sounds like you know Ingve's work actually a lot better than me then because uh so I, I genuinely don't remember the first time I heard an Ingve song. I do remember, yes, being. I remember. I remember it was MTV, <laughs> much like you. Um, it was. It wouldn't have been when this album was released, because in eighty four, eighty five, there's no way that I was listening to stuff like this. And we did have MTV here, but I'm actually struggling to think if I knew anybody with it. We certainly didn't have it in our house. Um, uh, and so 84, 85, I mean, I was very, very firmly just listening to nothing but, uh, like Motorhead, Genesis, Sister Mercy, you know, um, Black Sabbath. I was very much focused on that track as it were. So it probably would have been several years after this album came out, which is why I'm struggling to think what it was, because it may not even have been something off of this album, but I do remember watching MTV at a friend's house and seeing an Ingve track on there. And I'm pretty sure it was an instrumental one. I don't recall there being vocals, but this was a long time ago. And I, I admit that I just dismissed it. I sort of heard it and went, oh yeah, I've heard of this guy. That's the egotistical prick who plays really fast. Uh, oh yeah, look, 
he's an egotistical prick and he's playing really fast. Okay, next. <laughs> that was that was kind of my reaction. And I really didn't listen to Ingve willingly at all for many, many years as a result. Um, and then probably probably since after we started doing this show, actually, at some point, I was reading about something and Ingve's name came up and I thought, oh yeah, that's that guy. Uh, do you know what? I should go and listen to his like some of his stuff because I never really have. And I listened to this album and I was like, actually, that's not bad, you know. Um, I mean, that's the other thing, actually. When I was a teenager was also when I was getting into classical music, funnily enough. And yet, as I say, I didn't, for whatever reason, didn't kind of make that uh, connection between Ingve and classical. But yes, having now listened to this album, I mean, a lot in preparation for this episode, but as I say, quite a few times, uh, sometime in the last, like, between five and ten years, I can't remember exactly when. Yeah, I got to like it because it does remind me, in many ways, of classical music. Um, yeah. And, well, uh, and also, Ingve himself has mellowed a lot in his later life. A lot. <laughs> agreed. Um, and, that, and that's the thing. And when we talk about like him being like a singular, like who else is giving you this? If you really right. love classical music, right? Who else is providing this, on guitar. Yeah. this for you? No one. Because yep. like, and that to me is one of the things that make him, like you can argue who's better, who's this, who's that. But like, when I think of like virtuoso guitar players, again, I hesitate to even say names because everybody has their own list, right? But I think of, um, and guys that I would put in the same stratosphere as Ingve, uh, you know, whether or not he's at the top of that. But I think of guys like Steve Vai. Yep. I think of Satriani. I think of Paul yep. Gilbert. I think of uh, I think of Red Beach. I think of Marty Friedman, and I think of Randy Rhodes. That's a handful of guys that I would that I think of as like singular talents with their own style that is a signature style that you know that you're listening to them when you listen to them and that but none of them even though like randy Rhodes, for example was very classically influenced none of them are trying to do what ingve is doing and none of them are trying to be the best person who ever did that ever in the history of the world yeah (laughs) you know what i mean and so like that to me what what often you know, comes across as like this egomaniac when Ingve is interviewed, like it's very clear that he decided that this was his thing and he wanted to be the greatest that ever did it. But but from a sense of like trying to push it as far as it could possibly go. Mm-hmm. And you see that there's a great uh, interview with him on uh, Banger TV, you know, when we talk about like the Metal Evolution series and stuff like that. And one of the quotes that he said there was, um, you know, I had to be better than I am. He was talking about like how he really became obsessed with all this kind of stuff. He said, I had to become better than I am, you know, and to me to be better would be able to play more difficult, uh, you know, more strings, you know, uh, instead of a three string arpeggio four five six and on the 64th nodes and challenge myself and could i you know could i make this into a four four octave or you know and i'm just i'm talking about this stuff like i know what it is but i'm i'm not a musician but he said i never wanted to be a classical musician but i loved the classical tonalities and the more complex um 
And he said, it's not even that it's much more complex. It's that it's a full scale. Right. And so he was just talking about like wanting to push his playing to be as great as it could possibly be. And just like being obsessed with that, being obsessed with as accurate, as fast, as, uh, as just robust as it could possibly be. And then the whole more is more thing came up in that same episode. He said, I was first starting recording the first solo. Uh, he's talking about the Steeler album. Um, he said, uh, the producer was in there and they kept telling me to slow down. He said, I, I, you know, he said, Hey, slow down, you know, remember less is more. And he says, I always said, how could that be? How could less be more? It's impossible. More is more. He said, it's simple logic. He said, it's so that, you know, it became a bit of a joke, you know, and he says, I talk about the most martial amps and the, and the fastest notes and stuff. And, and he said, because, you know, why do it halfway? And then he actually like pauses in the interview and he's like, I, I just can't see why less is more. It's impossible for me to relate to that. And I think like that, and that's genuine. That's off that like that is genuinely oh yeah no i i watched that interview as well you're right he, he clearly is genuinely like i don't understand why people he's say that. mystified <laughs> by it he is mystified by it of like why would you do anything less than as much as you could possibly do and that is and i think when we talk about like him you know either talking shit about other guitarists or looking down on other things i go back to like this quote of like in his mind there is only one way to pursue this and more is more, you know what I mean? And so I kind of freaking love that about his approach. To me, the stuff that I don't care for about Ingve is again, the way that he has treated other people in the past, but especially in the, in the heyday of, you know, his popularity and stuff like that, the way he's talked about some of his former band members, things like that. Uh, that is not unique to Ingve. That there's a lot of crap that happens between, you know, bands in a, a very ego-driven um, industry, but that's the stuff that I don't, you know, care for. From but yeah. this, like, uh, this almost like maniacal obsession with being the best at this thing. I mean, when you hear him talk about it, you he gets that glimmer in his eye, right? Of like, and that banger interview is a good example. Of that. And this is like a more recent interview where he is much more mellow than he was um, back in the past. But yeah, it is like this. It's like Captain Ahab, dude. Like he's he's just trying to find the the most. <laughs> but that in that in itself, I think, is really demonstrates what we're talking about. As you say, that's a recent interview that was you know held what like ten years ago or something. Um, Within the last decade, for sure. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a recent interview. He has mellowed a little bit more, but he still has that obsession. Yes. And he is still doing that thing. That's the thing. It's like. At the time, in the 80s, I mean, he was a prick, no question. Uh, you know, trashing other musicians is never a good look. Trashing other artists of oh, any kind is never release, a good look. the whole release, the Fury thing, okay. the I Don't it's, Eat Donuts thing. There's, there's so many different uh, right. memes. Yeah, it's just, you know, like all of that. Yeah, he was a prick, no question. But at the time, it was also easy to dismiss him, as I did. You know, not only because of that, but also because I just wasn't, I didn't think I was into that kind of music. Um because he was just saying stuff and he had nothing to back him up. I mean, other than like, you know, the talent and sort of, yes, I can play a million notes a minute and all that, but he didn't have a track record as it were. But now 40 years almost on, 
you know, in 30 years on when he did that interview. But I've seen more, I watched more recent interviews with him as well, and he's still doing and saying the same things. He clearly means it. You know, there comes a point where you have to take people at their word and you can say, okay, well, they're putting on an act for a camera as well. Okay, maybe they are. But if they've been putting on that act for 30 or 40 years, trust me, as somebody who is, you know, is a very, very minor, but nevertheless public figure and who gives interviews and all that sort of thing, you, you can't keep that up if you don't mean it. You can't do that for 30, 40 years if you don't actually believe in it. It just, you can't do it. Um, and so that, I think, is really instructive about the attitude he takes. And what I'm saying is that this shows that everything you've said to be true, because he clearly does believe it. He clearly does still pursue it. There's, I'm not sure if I've told this on the show before. I've certainly told this anecdote many times. I don't recall <clears throat> if I've said it on here. But one of my favourite anecdotes is about a cellist, classical cellist called Pablo Casals, who was a, a bit of a multi-hyphenate. He was also a composer and conductor and what have you. One of the world's, probably the world's greatest cellists, certainly while he was alive, you know, regarded as like the, you know, the Yngwie Malmsteen, as it were, of the cello world. And he was interviewed uh, when he was 81 years old, I think it was. And the interviewer said, uh, I've heard that you practice for four hours a day still. Why? Like, you're the greatest cellist in the world. You're 81 years old. Why do you still practice for four hours a day? And Casal said, because I think I'm making progress. And I love that story because it says so much about how an artist, a good artist, a dedicated artist, is always learning, always wants to improve, always wants to get better. Now, for somebody like Casals, that wasn't necessarily playing a million notes a minute like it right. is for Ingve, but in his mind, you know, this is why I love Tai Chi. I'm not sure if I've talked about this before either, but, you know, uh, for many, many years, I've practiced Tai Chi on and off as well. And one of the things I love about Tai Chi is that you, you can never be perfect at Tai Chi. It is impossible because it is such a, a discipline of inner awareness that you know, you know within yourself when you're not doing something quite as well as you could. When, you know, you, you know that you could do that better. And somebody else observing might go, I don't see the difference. But you can tell because it's your body and your movement. And it's the same thing with artists. It's the same thing with creativity. And I think it's the same thing with Invite. Here's the, the crazy thing watching and reading modern interviews with him in preparation for this episode, God help me, a lot of what Ingve says now is almost word for word things that I say in interviews about my career and about creativity, about not following trends, about yep. doing his own thing for years and years and years, even if nobody else is doing it. It's what he does. It's what he wants to do. And he's not going to stop not caring if it's fashionable, art for art's sake, and making things for his own satisfaction and improving for his own satisfaction in pursuit of a goal that he knows is impossible, but he's still going to strive for it because why else? what else is there? Why wouldn't you? you know? Right. Um, well, and that's and why these... one of the reasons he gets so offended when people are like, well, you know, why haven't you changed your sound over the years? Or why haven't right. you, you know, gone in a different direction? And the question like physically... <laughs> It impacts him when people ask him that question. He's just because it, it reminds me of the uh, of the thing where he's like, it baffles me. That question baffles him. 
he's almost like, what are you even talking about? What do you mean? Change my, like, yeah, <laughs> it, he, he doesn't, he, I think, and I think that's where a lot of the, um, dismissiveness comes from is like the fact that you would even ask me that question tells me that you don't understand what I'm doing. Like uh, that, it's yes, that kind yes. of thing. You know what I mean? Of like, and whereas I think a lot of musicians who are insanely talented probably get questions that make them want to respond that way. He just respond. He like, he just can't filter that where it's right. just like <laughs> that, that question, you know, it's just such a fundamental misunderstanding of what I've spent my entire life doing that I don't even know how to respond to that. And so for, for him, he just comes off as an asshole when that says the through. quiet part out loud, like, as we yeah, say these of days, like what, what, who would ask, who would ask that question? You know what I mean? And so, um, but also it just fascinates me of like, to, to what you're saying, like it's the singular pursuit where when you look at all of the guys I mentioned, um, you know, before, whether it's Paul Gilbert, or Steve Vai, or Satriani, or Red Beach, or Marty Friedman, or Randy, I would say Satriani may be the most who continued to do, like, the solo thing. But he's also played, you know, in in different bands and stuff like that. But for a lot of these guys, like, there's there's a compromise because they have chosen to collaborate with someone else. Randy Rhodes playing in Ozzy's band. That's not Randy Rhodes 100% unfiltered. That's not Randy Rhodes pursuing his playing and exploring right, that's every him fitting aspect into of it. somebody else's band. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, granted, when that works the best is when there are moments in those songs where you get as close to the purity that is Randy Rhodes. And I think in in his that's why his solos to me are some of the greatest solos that have ever been written because they are within those songs but still you can just feel that he's just in a he's just on such a different level than the the box that he's playing within um you know you listen to steve Vai on the white snake album that he did right and it's like trying to contain i don't know a force of nature within but like in paul gilbert playing in mr big right and and Paul Gilbert is someone that I'll definitely be talking about more in the future, but like all these Red Beach and so Red Beach was a session musician playing on freaking D Snyder, you know, uh, albums that were labeled twisted sister albums, even though, you know, they were done with session musicians and stuff like that. And then you hear, and of course, Marty Friedman, even in his playing with Megadeth, which was very, you know, um, he was really able to lean into, you know, his talents with that, with that. But listen to his solo stuff, right? Listen to the stuff that he's exploring now. But like all of these guys made those compromises to be a part of something else. Whereas for the most part, Ingve has continued this singular pursuit and he has at times invited people into that. And I think that's why he gets upset when people focus on the singers that he's had, because to him, this has always been his pursuit. And he has brought in people at different points in time to work with him on it. But it's never it's it's always been him. He's always been the leader of this thing. It's always been yeah. his vision. He's always been pursuing um you know his his perfect perfected version of you know whatever this is. And so that's different than, you know, these other guys like joining a band and being a part of this, you know, more collaborative type of effort. Well, and as you said, yeah you're still getting 100% raw, unfiltered Ingve. Yes. <laughs> you know, in those cases, yes, he has a singer, but there is no question that he is calling the shots and he is the one writing the music and, and all that sort of thing and doing whatever the hell he wants to do. Um, 
I just wanted to talk a little bit about his uh, influences as well before we get onto the album. So uh, he's talked about this many times. His first concert apparently was Rainbow and yeah. uh, Richie Blackmore. And that was on the Rainbow Rising tour as well with Dio, Blackmore and Cozy Powell on drums. Like, what a fucking lineup that is. Yeah. Um, and he said many times that Richie Blackmore is basically his, his hero. Um, not that he tries to play like Blackmore, but just, you know... Yeah, that's his guitar hero. He's also mentioned, which I was amused to hear, uh, in one interview that he was influenced by uh, Genesis and by Tony Banks's keyboard playing, especially because Banks does these, as many people who've listened to me talk about Genesis know, uh, you know, Banks is renowned for making odd chords and doing weird chord changes and, and sort of just strange, weird stuff. Um, so to hear that that was an influence was was quite good. And there is actually a track on this album where not the bank side of genesis but there's a there's a part in one of the songs that to me put me in mind very much of steve hackett uh, who was the guitar player of genesis in their early days um so yeah that influence i think is is there and interesting but then most importantly of course he's as i said mentioned before he's talked about how classical composers are a huge influence on him yeah bach beethoven paganini and again as i say as somebody who does listen to classical i can hear that you know completely throughout all of his music it's very very clear but what he does well again talking about the cohesiveness of the songs what he does well like the greatest classical composers is not focus exclusively on playing a million miles an hour but does actually temper it with slower more uh you know emotional or more gentle pieces uh and just kind of get that contrast the peaks and valleys the light and dark so that you get the contrast, because when it's just a hundred miles an hour without any um, let up, then you lose that. You know, it just becomes noise, just becomes a blur. And that's one of the things actually that I don't like about some other solo guitar instrumentalists is that they do do that sort of thing. Uh, whereas, yeah, at least on this album, as I say, I'm not as familiar with his later catalogue as you clearly are. But certainly on this album, he doesn't do that. You know, every song has those peaks and valleys, which uh, contributes to it being a, a much better album, in my opinion. Yeah, and I would definitely say, like, I'm not a l- super familiar with his later catalog. For me, it's this early stuff that, you, you know, but more the albums that had a, a vocal presence more, you know? Like, so it, it's the, you know, Jeff Scott Soto, Mark Bowles, Lynn Turner stuff that, because it's catchier, you know, it's got those choruses, it's got that kind of stuff. This one, because there's only two songs that have vocals on them, and for me, one of them just doesn't really hit with me. This wasn't an album that I spent a ton of time with, um, you know, back in the day. And it, being introduced to him through, like, the MTV era, that's what I gravitated towards, right? Which was very much of a time. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, st- he just released an album. What, it was Parabellum, right? I'd have to look at his uh, page. But yeah, Parabellum 2021 um yeah just released and he had one in 2019 2016 2012 2010 i mean he's he's out there still doing it and when he's not putting albums out he's touring Uh, well i was gonna say and still performing as well yeah one of the interviews i saw with him i mean you can barely call it an interview really he was on some uh local news show in america i can't even remember where it was but you know some what just early morning, you know, local news thing. And clearly he was playing in that town or, you know, the next town over, whatever, um, that weekend. 
And so they got him in the studio and he performed Far Beyond the Sun in its entirety, live. <laughs> I mean, to a backing track of drums and stuff, but he was clearly playing the guitar part live, live in the studio, and then chatted for a couple of minutes with the hosts afterwards. And as I say, it was barely an interview. But the fact that he was... They just let him play for like nearly six minutes <laughs> on this uh, local news show was amazing. And yeah, it was all to, but it was, the point was that it was to plug, uh, as I say, him playing in that town over that weekend. He's, he's still out there performing and he's still out there doing appearances like that to get people to come to the shows. This guy clearly loves playing live. A hundred. I mean, watch any clip of him, right? I mean, he's just, um, I don't, he'll never stop doing that until he can't do it anymore. You know, it's like yeah. your, your whatever, 90 year old celloist, uh, right. you know, he's just <laughs> going to keep pursuing that. And, um, for me, I think the reason that I kind of faded away from really being a consistent listener of his stuff is just like, I got what I needed out of it. Like, I, I feel like I got some great songs from Ingve in that era of eighties. Uh, and, that is enough for me. And so when I go back and listen to his stuff, I go back and listen to, you know, the more vocal heavy albums where I'm still getting that incredible shredding, that incredible classical influence. And, but I'm getting it within songs that for me are more, um, easier to revisit, you know? And so that's been my sort of ingme, but well, it's always like, if you mention his name, uh, the thing that pops in my head is like maybe the greatest guitar player ever. Right. Just that's he's uh, certainly certainly an argument that can be made. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like maybe, maybe that's not true now, or maybe there were other people out there then, but like, I, I just go back to the introduction to seeing him play and what else was happening around the scene at the time. And there just being nothing like him. It was just, it was like a lightning bolt. (laughs) Like, it's just like, what the hell? Who even knew that a guitar could be played that fast? Right, like, exactly. Just, and like that was one of those things. Like my buddy, who I grew up with, um, who was started learning guitar, you know, in his early teenage years, and just was couldn't even fathom what was happening, <laughs> yeah. you know, in that sort of thing. And like, I I haven't talked about this, but I, I turned 49 recently, and my goal is to at least be able to be a competent beginner guitar player by the time I turn 50. So I've, I bought a guitar and I've been practicing and, um, and just like, even in my complete infancy of trying to learn that instrument, I've already gained such an incredible amount of appreciation for every aspect of guitar playing. Yeah. Like just, oh, yeah, just yeah. No, you know. nothing will, nothing will uh, give you admiration for somebody who does something well than trying to do it yourself. Even but, like things like the shape of just the shape of different, you know, songs and, and how they're, put together and the efficiency with them or the difficulty of them and the choices that are made in, you know, going from, you know, one quarter, one note to another and, and what that looks like and how it, how it transitions and then how it transitions back and things like that are just, um, and again, I'm in my complete infancy of that, but then to go back and, you know, revisit stuff like Ingbe stuff, it's just like, 
<laughs> Especially when, like, on some of these songs, he's playing, he's playing it on acoustic at the same level of speed and virtuosity that he's playing it on yes. electric at the same time. And it's like, that is when you're just, you're like, what is even happening right now? You know, like, what? This is otherworldly is the only thing I could think of. Well, let's take that as our cue to talk about the album then. Um, so, yeah, 1984 was released, as we've mentioned. There are eight songs. It's 39 minutes long. It was self-produced and mostly self-played. Like, all guitars, bass, and Moog are played by Yngwie. Mm-hmm. And then there are other keyboards by Jens Johansson. Who drums by Who is great, yeah. Drums by Barrymore Barlow, who was formerly of Jethro Tull. Uh, which I think was another band that I've heard they cite as, you know, somebody that he liked, because obviously a very famous prog band. Uh, and then the two vocal tracks are sung, as you mentioned earlier, by Jeff Scott Soto, who I think this was pretty much his breakout thing. I don't think he'd done anything big, Jeff Scott Soto, I mean, before this album. Yeah, um, and it really isn't until the next album that he... Right, then he's on pretty much every track, and actually you... wrote... On the next album, I believe Jess Scott Soto actually also wrote most of the lyrics as well, or at least some of the lyrics. Well, um, I mean, that depends on who you ask in that oh, situation. I see. But yeah, that, <laughs> but yes, that was the understanding until a few years ago when Ingve was talking about how you know he wrote everything. But um, right, yeah, but, but certainly yeah, on was, this album, he wrote everything. There's no no credit for anybody else. Right, I think it from a credit standpoint, um, definitely you know Jeff Scott Soto. But it was the next album where, to me, where you really hear Jeff scott soto like this album he's very sparsely used yeah <laughs> uh so yeah let's get into the album and let's start with track one one of Ingve's most famous tracks black star Probably, uh, it, for me, his best instrumental, in my opinion. Really? Wow. I mean, maybe not his best, but my favorite of his instrumentals. Like, I, I feel like this is, this piece, when you talked before about, like, you know, how he's composing it so that even the instrumentals have, you know, the strong core to them and, and, and they really hold together well. Like, I think this song is the best example of... It has such a strong theme. It's so emotional. The the way he's playing these notes, the way he draws some of them out, the way just the um just the like the descending nature of some of this, like this is a masterpiece of a song for me. 
Wow. I mean, it, like I say, it is one of his most famous songs. It's one of the ones, this and Far Beyond the Sun, track two, I've seen him say that he he, he still plays them live now and he expects to be playing those two tracks. 100%. Till the yeah. day he dies. Um, and it is good. I mean, the, you know, lovely, nice acoustic intro, which obviously at the time was a bit of a cliche uh, already. Still, you know, even more of a cliche now, but I think now it's kind of gone beyond <laughs> cliche into just, okay, fine, whatever. Um, one thing that surprised me about this track that always surprised me about it is how much of it isn't guitar. Like, you know, given that this is Ingve, there is the bass and drums are really prominent yeah. throughout. The keyboards kick in kind of before the guitars do, apart from the acoustic. Um, and he spends a lot of this song, I mean, really, the whole album, which is what I meant about the sort of the, the light and shade stuff, but he spends a lot of this song not shredding. Um, but for, to its benefit, though, right? And that's oh, what I'm totally, talking about. Yeah. Is like, here is this... I love how this first you get the little sort of uh, acoustical intro, and then it, that's almost like a like a faint, right? Like it's, and then you yeah. get the bass and the drums <laughs> well, come but in. But is it though? Because no, it's no, a sort because of like classical yeah, acoustic, and you do get that again later. So yeah, it, and it closes with that. The album closes with that, and yeah. so you, you it, which we'll talk about that when we get to the closer, right? But in terms of like completing the circle, um, but yes. What I what I love about this song is that you are not prepared for what this song is going to bring you, <laughs> like, it, and I, that's why I love that sort of plotting, you know, drums and bass, and he starts coming in, and it's not shredding. He's playing these notes, but it's very emotional, and the keyboards are so they're building such an atmosphere to this song, mm-hmm. and then when he hits that electrical note, you know, and it's just this mournful, and that that first phrase where it's just those the bended note and then you know the the multiple notes and then you know the second phrase which is that sort of descending despair like before anything really speeds up and you get what we would call shredding it's just some of the most emotional playing and when you started with acoustic and then you have the slow build with the bass and the drums and the keyboard and then you get these you know just singular notes at first that come out like how he composes this and how it builds is just so powerful like i still get like goosebumps listening to the song every time i listen to it It, it's so it's so powerful it is i I saw him say actually that he wanted to uh, several times i mean he said that he wanted to play the guitar like it was a violin yes again like you said you know not that he wanted to be a classical musician but that he loved how classical sounded and that, yeah, he, he said that a few times that he wanted to play the guitar like it's a violin. And I think this track really showcases that, well, again, the Paganini influence is very strong. All those wailing high notes that you mentioned with the string bends and harmonics and stuff throughout. If you go and listen to some of Paganini's most famous works, you'll find a lot of that stuff in there, but on violin rather than on guitar. Um, so yeah, I agree with you that, you know, the fact that he spends a lot of this track not shredding helps is what helps make the track work it achieves that effect he wants and it means there's more contrast which as i said you know gives you those peaks and valleys of sound which are important because otherwise it just becomes white noise so yeah i think i wouldn't say this is it's not my favorite track and i don't necessarily think it's his best instrumental but it's certainly a strong one it's a really good one to kick off the album because apart from as you say that sort of maybe slight surprise <laughs> uh at the very beginning it does set you up for what the rest of the album is going to be for sure. Um, and we talked about 
on the Facebook page, someone had talked about making a list of like the best pick slides ever. Put this <laughs> very close to the top of that list because when it comes in and then you get that note, damn man, that is that is just it is good, freaking powerful. Like it's yeah, this song is just perfect for me. Like, and well, then I love the way that it kind of again it goes back to that sort of plotting you know, approach at the end of the song too. Cause there's parts where it speeds up and he's just absolutely shredding. But the fact that it keeps returning to, you know, that place. And again, it's the plotting bass and the drums and the atmospheric keyboards. Like, man, I just really, really love this song. But the thing that stops it being perfect is the fade out. <laughs> I don't know, and, dude, because see, like, like I get it. I get it. No, but here's the thing. It's not just, you know, my sort of disdain for fading out tracks. Classical music doesn't fade. Like, it can't. Because, you know, the the classical stuff, by definition, was all written before we had recording technology. This It was written and composed and performed back in the days when you literally had to go to watch somebody to perform right. perform it in order to hear music. That was the only way to hear music, was to hear it live. And so you can't fade out <laughs> live performance. Um, as a result, even modern classical, modern orchestral music, however you want to call it, generally doesn't fade out because it's just not part of the style. And it's impossible that Ingve wouldn't have known that. So I, 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 the fades, and there are multiple fades on this album, they baffle me a little bit. I can only think that it's because at the time we were still in that period, especially in the early 80s, when it was just what you did. Like so many songs faded out because it was just a part of how songs were recorded. Pop songs, I mean, specifically, were recorded. Um, you know what's funny? It does is baffle like, me. I've never examined why I like the fade out. Like, because we've talked, you know, we've talked a lot about like how you, that is a, that's not a good thing. It's always a black mark, yeah. It's always <laughs> a black mark for you. And I like it. I guess there's something to me of like, if I really like a song, the idea of it like continuing on forever is something that I like. And so just the idea that it's like, he's still playing this song. Like as it fades <laughs> out, like it's still, it doesn't ever end. And I don't know, something about that. Like I, I definitely can recognize times where I don't think that it works, but I feel like it works on this song. Fair enough. I don't. <laughs> I like a climax. Uh, let's move on to track two then. Far Beyond the Sun.
What I love about this one is that, uh, to me, this song feels even more classically influenced, but it's more up-tempo. This is definitely more of a shred fest, and the sort of trading off between keyboards and guitars here, like, it's just, it's another, it's a different version of the instrumental than the what you got first. So even though both instrumental songs to open up the album, this is a different flavor than that. And it is the um, much more almost like a like a duel or a chase scene or something like that. You're getting this sort of escalating, you know, um, more up-tempo feel to it. And so I like it as a compliment to the first song. Yeah, it demonstrates that versatility, yeah, doesn't it? It sure. shows that, yes, this is these are all instrumental or mostly instrumental tracks, but they're not all going to be the same. Um, interestingly, the intro to this sounds really Halloween to me. Now, I don't think Halloween, I'm not sure if they were even formed in 1984. If they were, they were certainly very nascent. Um, so I'm not suggesting that he was influenced by them, but I just thought that was interesting that, yeah, if you listen just to the very intro, be like, yeah, I could hear this being the Halloween track. Um, something about the Teutonic uh, composition, I suppose. The main core of this song with the rising chord progression, I think is great. I really like that. And again, I appreciate that it's not, a, a lot of the playing over that chord progression isn't just a thousand mile an hour shredding, but it's quite tuneful. There's some, you know, some interesting rhythm play, some like nice tuneful soloing. The guitar versus keyboard bit where they, you know, the call and response, I think that's a nice touch. As it's you said, awesome. the, the keyboard does kind of take the place of vocals in a few places and a few tracks on this album. I do think that what they're playing is way over the top in those sections. Like, that's proper. It, it is real guitar versus keyboard. Like, haha, watch me do this. No, watch me do this. Um, yeah, see, that, that just baffles me, Anthony, because why would you do it halfway? Right. Why wouldn't you like, do any? Yeah, I don't understand. Less, less what is you mean not more. Less is more here. It, exactly. Exactly. It is a bit OTT. It goes on a little bit long for me, that section. Uh, but it is a nice touch. And again, you know, unusual. Not that. Guitar versus keyboard bits hadn't been done before. I can think of some early Genesis songs, for example, that did that sort of thing, but obviously no, to nowhere near the right. level of Guitar virtuosity. versus keyboard shred? Yeah, I don't exactly. know. Like with the classical <laughs> kick to it. Like this This reminds me of like, uh, you, you know, one of the uh, musketeers, like, uh, you know, battling someone up a flight of stairs, you know, uh, right, on the side right. of a castle as this is kind of going. You know, like it's just it just keeps escalating sort of up. It's got some really great... Um, you know, licks in it, and yeah, just the complete over-the-topness are, it, it has almost like a swashbuckling sort of uh, feel to it, which is, again, very sort of, uh, just a great contrast to almost like the mournful uh, first song, Yeah, you know, to this one. So, yeah, it's so one, right it's out one, of the gate, what a one-two punch. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the best songs on the album for me. It's not quite, it's not quite my favorite, uh, but it is for me it's definitely one of the best you can see why it's so popular and why he keeps playing it for sure um i also love that it doesn't fade (laughs) it does have a proper ending but not only does it have a proper ending but it also has one of my one of the other things i love about an ending which is it ends on a suspended note it doesn't end on the root which is a very uh modern classical thing to do a lot of classical stuff does end on the root note you know because it's just it's how music was written back then and everybody expected it. But some didn't, you know, especially when you started getting towards the 19th century and even 20th century, early 20th century composers, they started doing things differently. And you, you'll hear a lot of that period of classical 
where things do end on a suspended note and it leaves you in that kind of, it leaves you hanging. Yeah. Um, Beatles, was it Day in the Life that ends with that piano? Done. Uh, so, you know, same sort of thing as that, where you're just like, where did that note come from? Like, that doesn't belong <laughs> to anything else in this phrase. Uh, and that's how we're going to end the song? Okay. So I really like that, just because it kind of catches you off guard a little bit, keeps you on your toes. Yeah, I mean, we're what? Five, it's a minute longer than Black Star, but, you know, we're 11 minutes into this album, and so far, nothing but greatness. Yeah. Uh, and then track three, the first vocal track, Now Your Ships Are Burned. where i feel like we fall down and skin our knee a little bit here <laughs> um, i mean it's it's definitely written for vocals that's the other thing about this track is like it you can yeah i think so because it's the music is a lot simpler than you know this sort of crazy instrumentals on a lot of the rest of the album also the vocals <laughs> i mean again written for vocals but the vocals are mixed low enough. Yeah, dude. That you're never in any doubt about who is the real frontman well, here. <laughs> and that's really, I think you just summarized the whole thing. I, I feel like with this song, after coming off those first two, the music itself isn't strong enough to elevate the song. And the vocals definitely aren't. And so yeah. it feels like a poor use of vocals and also a less inspired musical composition. And so those two things together feel like a stumble after what you got on the first two. And I, I would agree. I, I think we're in agreement then about which is the better vocal track on this album. Yeah, by yeah, far. Yeah, I agree. This is a bit of a stumble, as you say. It's uh yeah. It's I just kept thinking complex. like this is how you introduce the singer. Yeah. This is where <laughs> I mean, if you had flipped them, right, if you had flipped the two vocal tracks and, you know, then I think this would have been a little more well-received, but like as the introduction of vocals to this album, very underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not the greatest vocal melody in the world either, no. whereas it, it's, you know, it's kind of leaps around without much rhyme or reason. Um the lyrics themselves are, you know, whatever. I mean, they're not, yeah, they're nothing not. special, but they're fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. But yeah, the the vocal performance. Well, no, the, no, actually, that's not fair. The vocal performance is fine if we assume that he is doing exactly what Ingve tells him to. Right. And there's the problem: is that yeah, the vocal melody and uh, cadence and all that is just not that great. Which um, is so wild, right? Because we talked about earlier how, you know, for uh, for a lot of other guitar players, like they're they're making a compromise to fit within this sort of band structure, right? And to 
And here you can totally feel that the vocalist is the one making the compromise to fit within what's happening here, which is just such a weird dynamic compared to almost every other band ever. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, it is wild to kind of hear that here of like, wow, that's, I guess that's how we're using vocals here. Interesting. There's also a good example in this track of the style of instrumental virtuoso playing that I don't like. And that is, there's a section from a minute to a minute 40, which is just filling time with pyrotechnics. Like, it, it, yes, it's technically impressive. It's Ingve it's doing his thing and playing at a million miles an hour, but there's nothing else to it. Like, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't add anything to the song. It's just there for him to demonstrate, hey, watch me. Uh, look what I can do. And that's where, not only Ingve, you know, the, that's where sort of instrumental uh virtuoso playing for me in general falls down you know you see that with a lot of people who do that sort of thing and and i don't like it that's one of the things i don't like about it and why i'm often dismissive of those kinds of displays of pyrotechnics um and as i've said you know most of this album actually ingve it doesn't do that and he does yeah Yes, he demonstrates his virtuosity, but he does it within the context of making a point or going somewhere, you know, in a great composition and leading off to another section. Whereas here he doesn't. It is literally just like, I'm going to play a guitar solo for 40 seconds as fast as I possibly can. Uh, and there's very little tune or melody to it. And it doesn't really bring anything to the song. It's, uh, it's a shame. As you say, for, for track three, you know, we've had two really good tracks and now track three is just, yeah, a bit of a letdown. Yeah, agreed. Doesn't fade though. <laughs> no, so it's got that going for it. It's I got mean, that going for it. It gets yeah. one one positive mark on the back end. Yeah. <laughs> on to track four, Evil Eye. is a good reset right we get back to i think a, a stronger sort of main theme to the song this is, so i feel like we're three was a stumble four we we write the ship we're good now um this song is a little bit more metal but this is you know one of those songs where you have the acoustic accompaniment to the electric guitar and it that to me is just like the the choices there are super impressive and just the level of playing is insane yeah you know i really like this track um, for for a number of reasons, you've got I mean more faux medieval acoustic stuff yes. in the intro, yep. uh, which you know as we've already established in this uh, <laughs> a few episodes ago, I'm a big fan of, um, and that theme carries through the song as well. There is a section, uh, the, the section from fifty seconds to a minute ten, which we hear again repeated after a brief bridge, and it again comes in later towards the end of the song. That almost sounds like a classical piece. Uh, which is one of the things that, you know, sort of endears me 
to this song. Yeah. Um, the song is apparently inspired by a piece by Johann Krieger, who was um, a German composer and organist uh, in the classical period. It, it's in, apparently inspired by one of his pieces called Bure. Um, I'm not familiar with that piece, but I, I saw that and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that probably explains why this one sounds very much like a classical piece. Uh, Although, I, the, does it have the, does the original piece have the shredding, shredding keyboard, you know, <laughs> solo that this one has? I don't think it does. Yeah, oh, I don't again, think so. The, I've got it in my notes again, the guitar versus Moog bit that follows the, you get a, a, the medieval acoustic bit kicking in at like two and a half minutes, which again, I really yes. like. But then, yeah, the guitar versus keyboard bit that follows it, I'm not so keen on. <laughs> uh, see, and I, I love that. I'm like, damn, this guy's bringing it. Because <laughs> yeah, again, I, I mean, what would it look like if you're playing with Ingve and you're not? And you're not like, doing that. It yeah, would be, yeah. you know, if you if you just played like a traditional, even keyboard solo, it would be so. It would be such a step down from what was happening on guitar that I just can't imagine it working. Like you, if you're gonna sign on to be on this album, you just have to. You got to be all in. You've got to bring you know, your A game. You got to you just got to be all in. It's just going to be a track meet for this <laughs> album. When especially anytime that it's sort of a trade off sort of thing, like you, you just got to be all in for that. And what I love about it is he is. He is. That's true. Yeah, I think the, the, one of the things I like about this track and the next track uh, as well, which we'll come to in a moment, but this track is a good demonstration of it as well, of what I was talking about before about how to keep things interesting in an instrumental in the same way that good prog bands who write these long multi-section pieces like Halloween or Marillion uh, do, you know, in their early days, certainly did that a lot and did it very well. Making sure that all the separate pieces are interesting in and of themselves so that you don't just sort of switch off and stop paying attention, but then also using motifs and small repetitions to tie them all together, yes. to bring you back around and give things a bit of familiarity, you know, four minutes after you've left the first section or whatever. Um, I think this track's a very good demonstration of how to do that and how it works, you know, why it works to sort of keep you interested in a piece that is like more than five minutes long, yep. but it is merely a taster. It's not eight and a half minutes long. <laughs> yep. The centerpiece of the album, and that is track five, Icarus Dream Suite, Opus 4. I mean, the fact that he even calls it Opus 4 is kind of like a bit of a giveaway, you know? <laughs> you understand the ticket you're buying um, 
I think yeah. when you get into the song <laughs> and the fact that it, you know, it's saying that it's uh, a sweep, right? So you also know that yeah. we're, we're in for, you know, a collection of multiple pieces and we're in for a bit of a longer ride. And, you know, for me, like anything over, I mean, anything even approaching seven minutes is a tough <laughs> that's a tough sell for me yep. you really have to justify it but i will say over multiple listens i actually really like this song and i like it as in the place that it is on this album mm, as the centerpiece to your point i do i do like it so yeah it took me a few takes to really warm up to the length of it but especially when I started thinking of it as like kind of multiple pieces in one, that sort of helped me mm. find my way into it because it was, you know, sort of like, okay, I can see where now this piece begins and then I can see where we're on to the next thing. And so that kind of helped me um, put it all together as a collection. Well, and the other, you know, famously, you've said that one of your, one of the only other tracks that you have massive length that you really like is uh, Halloween's Halloween. And that does the same thing. Again, that shows, you know, how that can work when you build a song out of these different sections and pieces. It's not just the same thing repeated for 10 minutes. It does move through as if they're all the most mini songs that have all been kind of jammed together. Genesis used to do that a lot in their early days as well. Um, And yeah, this definitely is how this song is put together this is also uh inspired uh by a classical piece it's inspired uh by adagio in g minor which actually is one of those pieces where nobody's quite sure exactly who wrote it um, yes i read about that yeah it's uh i mean they think they've settled it now but you know i think the jury for some people is still out but yes Again, the fact that it's inspired by uh, an existing classical piece, I think, is very. It tells you a lot about this track. Um, but I love it. This is my favorite track on the album, which I don't think will surprise anybody <laughs> at all. Partly because it's the longest track, partly because it is a very, very classical sounding piece. Uh, it has those lovely sections and motifs running through it. I think it's a really great composition. You've got, I mean, the opening is like really OTT, big, epic drama. Um, Again, put me in mind of Halloween. It made me, this, the couple of tracks on here that put me in mind of Halloween made me wonder if Kai Hansen is a fan or was a fan, you know, in the early days of Ingve. And I wonder whether he may have had an influence on some of Halloween's more epic tracks because there's definitely a similarity there, I think. If you are classically influenced, like, even, and whether you liked Ingve or not, you know, in terms of character. I think it would be hard not to be influenced by the way that Ingve is his, his sort of translation of classical into what he's doing. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I feel like it would be if you were in anywhere in the, you know, orbit of what he was doing at this point in time, it would be hard not to be influenced by what he was doing. And so I think. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think actually that's the other thing to bear in mind is that this album predates power metal as we kind of, you know, as we know it, really. Um, You know, there were bands like Halloween, I think, as I say, I think they formed in 83 or maybe even 82. So it's not that they weren't around, but 
certainly they hadn't had the huge success, you know, that led to the birth of what we think of as European and specifically German power metal. And so this album predates it. And yeah, I do wonder if it had an influence. I hadn't really thought about this until I was, you know, listening to it over and over for this episode. And I thought, yeah, I wonder if it had an influence actually on that movement. Yeah. And there's clearly things that like Ingve is not interested in pursuing in his version of this. Right. That you know, become parts of power metal moving forward. So that is always fascinating of like, what are the pieces that, you know, um, really stick with people and then they carry forward into their version of, you know, what this influence is for them. And so, yeah, but, but I, and I, and I like for, I like when Ingve leans more into the classical feel of the song, because I think it's the way he delivers it. That is so freaking impressive. And so I, I, you know, when he, even when he has the strong vocals around him and he has the sort of more traditional song structure and melodies and stuff like that, when he really leans into the classical elements, I think is what makes it pop. Agreed. Yeah. I love how the, there's a, a lead, the lead part comes in over the top of the acoustic guitar at about yeah. three minutes and 10 on this song. I just think that's really well done because it kind of it sweeps in slowly and kind of builds up and and helps build everything to the moment uh, uh about half a minute later when the drums and the electric kick in and you get that sort of flurry of distortion for a while um yeah i just think that's really well written really well played really well handled it's a lovely part of this song and then the final guitar bit that kicks in over the acoustic at seven minutes is also lovely and that is the part that reminded me of steve hackett something about the way he plays that that i just thought i could picture steve Hackett playing that on an early genesis album for sure and i mean that as a compliment um the one thing that i wish this song had and that i wish the album actually as a whole had is that and i was thinking about this in the context of sort of the peaks and valleys light and shade however you want to put it is that nothing here is truly dark as it were like it's all very and that's not to say that there aren't some gentle pastoral passages, but none of it is kind of off key or uh yeah, or just dark sounding. It's all quite uplifting. Well, like, the it's dynamics so help it work. It's got those peaks and valleys and it, you know, it works dynamically, but it's yeah, it's all a bit uplifting and triumphalist, you know? It's so funny to me because I feel like the the ending sort of keyboard line is similar to the exorcist. <laughs> and so like as the song is kind of you know heading toward its end i'm like ooh, there's a little exorcist vibe in there so that's funny that you feel like it's a very uplifting it, i guess it is if you're i didn't get that at all <laughs> that's so funny oh uh, but yeah i let's like say this is even despite the fade this is my favorite track on the album uh and for me is very much the centerpiece this would have been the first track on side two uh in when this was originally released in the vinyl and I think that makes sense, you know, to give it... Because you couldn't open the album with this. I mean, you could, but you would... I think you'd lose a lot of people. <laughs> and I think kind of going back to Ingve's approach, like, of, like, pushing the envelope and, and yeah. you know, yeah. seeing how far he could go. Like, can I make an eight-and-a-half-minute song work on this... Without vocals? Yeah, yeah, on this album. And I think, yeah, I mean, clearly, it being your favorite song on the album, that's a resounding yes, right? And so that is innovative in the sense that it's i mean you're you're basically doubling the song length of what people are expecting 
in an album like this and it is the core of the album yeah so yeah well i'm just looking actually i'm thinking about again the context of the time so power slave was released the same year as this uh and rhyme of the ancient mariner is almost 14 minutes long so it's not that nobody was nobody in the metal scene was doing long songs like this but obviously that's got vocals i am i cannot think and listeners, if somebody can, you know, set me right in the comments uh, for this episode. But I cannot think of anybody who had done an instrumental metal piece or even hard rock piece that was eight and a half minutes long before this. Now, there have been since, for sure, but I cannot think of any that preceded uh, this album. So I'll be interested to hear if anybody, else, if anybody can think of, if I'm overlooking something obvious, because off the top of my head, I cannot think of anybody who's done that. Who'd done that? Sorry, uh, previous to 1984. So there again, you know, pushing the envelope, as you said. Yep. Moving on, track six, the second vocal track on the album, as above, so below. feel like their second attempt at a vocal track on the album is so much more successful than the first one yeah um i like the sort of gothic opening that we get um you know the sort of i will never die because i will fly to the other side i think is a much better showcase of jeff scott soto's vocals than anything you know up to this point and it has a catchiness to it that to me just makes the song resonate so much more than the first time around that couldn't agree more yeah this is it works much better as a song than ships are burned uh it feels more cohesive it's better suited to vocals the vocal melody is better the vocals are higher in the mix as well yes um but also it is just a genuinely better vocal melody uh soto's vocal gymnastics on the chorus are wild here and again, not that nobody was doing that in 84, because by then plenty of people were. But still, it's, you know, I again, I saw an interview with Ingvae where he talked about when he works with singers, he wants singers who are almost operatic in style and have that control over their voice. And Soto has definitely got that. Like, the not just I will fly to the other side, um, but the final bit of the chorus, when he matches the yes. guitar and goes up and up and up and up and up holy cow that is some really really impressive vocals there um, well and it makes yeah. you be like where the hell was this you know before song <laughs> Four six tracks on the album yeah. you know like it, it, it does it almost it this song makes uh the previous song worse because right. then you realize like oh we could have had this yeah this sounds like what 
This sounds more like what you would think. I mean, judging by what we've gotten from the keyboards and even the bass and the, you know, this is what we would have expected from a vocal standpoint. And so, yeah, it, it kind of makes, uh, you know, now your ships are burned even more bewildering, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I agree with you. Like, why they are in that order and th- this wasn't... Because I don't think it would have broken anything up, putting this in track three instead of, you know, swapping these around so this was track three. It's not like it would have changed the tone or feel of the album. Because, again, the album is actually quite cohesive in terms of tone in that it is all fairly uplifting and fairly sort of major key. And yeah, you know, it's like I say, it's not a very dark album, which I suppose, you know, is a bit unusual for metal at the time. Um, But uh, yeah, so they could have put this as track number three. I I don't know why they didn't very odd. Yeah, and that sort of triumphant determination in the vocal, like the first time Ingve plays the guitar line at the beginning of the song, like you can hear the vocal in your head once you've heard the song. And so yeah. it, it has that, it just immediately is like you're already thinking of that. Um, yeah, I like it. I think, you know, is it the best song in the album? No, but I definitely feel like uh, this is one of the better songs on the, it's by far the best vocal song on the album, yes. for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it, But that's and it not is, saying uh, much. It's not, no, because obviously it's, you know, first out of two. Um, but it is also a, a, just a good track as well. Yeah. Again, it shows that it, it's Ingve sort of holding back a little on the instrumental stuff so that there can be to make room for vocals. Um, well, and, and after it, an eight minute suite, yeah. you know, to then <laughs> yeah. bring the vocals back in a four and a half minute song, simplify the music, simplify yep. the music a little bit. Yes. Not that it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. Cause it's still, you still get that. You're not going to get an Ingve song without that, but, um, yeah. So again, I like the placement. Right. But it doesn't have four different sections like right. the previous yeah, song. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 So I like it. Uh, I don't have an awful lot to say about it. It's much better track than Ships Burned. Uh, and maybe, and, and I think a, a more of a preview of what's to come on the next album from Jeff Scott Soto. Oh, yeah, that's probably fair to say. Yeah. Uh, so track seven is Little Savage. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest knock against this song is it has to live up to the other songs, you know, from an instrumental standpoint. I, I it, to me, what I like about the song is it's a little more sinister feeling um, than the other ones. But I don't, I don't know that it stands up to. It definitely doesn't stand up to the first two songs on the album. So it's a tough. Um, I don't know. It, it's in a tough spot for me. Yeah, 
No, I, I agree. I think, I mean, speaking of Ships Are Burned, I think the main body of this track actually feels like a retread of yeah. that track to me, uh, which, you know, doesn't endear it to me. <laughs> um, I do feel starts... like the keyboards saved the song about four minutes in, though. Like, they I, towards I was... the back half of the song, the keyboards definitely bring it from the brink of just When it know, becomes Flashdance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's basically, I was going to say, he starts to get interesting about a minute and a half in when his soloing becomes a bit more structured, but it doesn't really get interesting until, yeah, it turns into flash dance at four minutes. Yeah. Uh, and that's then exactly suddenly, what I had. Four minutes. The keyboards yeah. come in to save the song. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, actually, now it's a lot more interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, considering that this is the last full song on the album last song of any length like thank goodness that it does end on a good note um but up until that point the first four minutes are, are a bit of a letdown yeah it's a shame but that's a great lesson isn't it of like if you're going to do one or the other finish strong oh for sure yeah you know because then at least you you know the takeaway from it is you know what that kind of figured itself out that yeah then at least be it okay. ended well yeah 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 well it's you know there's a, a lesson there in writing and screenwriting in everything, especially right? yeah you know um, yeah, you know, if you end, it's, it's an old, old truism that if you end well, people will, if you have a great ending, people will forgive a mediocre movie. But if you have a great movie that ends badly, people will go out going like, oh, well, that's trash. Don't watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the ending is so important in works of art. Um, but yeah, so so it, it ends well. But up until that point, just a bit mediocre, unfortunately. Uh, and it is, as I said, the last track of any length, you know, the last full track on the album. But we do have track eight, which is Farewell. It's funny because the tone of it feels like a farewell, and it's very reminiscent of the acoustic opening of the album, the very first part of Black Star. But it feels like um, tonally, it is like the tone of it is more of a of an outro. Yeah, for sure. I, as you say, it's back to the acoustic. It's not. I, I did. I literally got them side by side. <laughs> I opened the files side by side and just made sure it is not exactly the same as the intro to Black Star. But obviously, you've had a whole album. You know that was like thirty odd minutes ago. Uh, so it, it's clearly meant to evoke it. And it evokes. Well, I think you hit the term. It evokes it. It's not. It's not the same. But it's there's enough of a resemblance there that you that you start thinking about the beginning of Black Star. Yeah, I mean, it uses similar notes. It's played in a very similar tempo. Uh, Black Star doesn't have the harmonics, which this does, which are a nice touch, but still. What what I was going to say was, if you have listened to this and assumed that it was the same as Black Star, I think you can be absolutely forgiven. Because, again, same notes, basically, same tempo, clearly meant to evoke it. And it's been 30-odd minutes since you heard Black Star. So, yeah, I can quite understand that, you know, if anybody might think that it was the same, but it's not quite it does again the classical influence it feels almost like a sort of short nocturne like i could imagine this as a passage in satis gymnopodies or something uh it's really very very feels like a a short classical piece this can you and like can't you just imagine this played on a piano that it would work really well um so yeah it's a really nice way to finish off the album 
an unusual, or I wouldn't say unusual, an unexpected way. If you've just, you know, considering you've just listened to more than half an hour of guitar pyrotechnics, and then suddenly you get this actually not very complex or complicated piece at all. But again, I think that's one of the strengths of the album that he does actually know when not to do that generally. Yeah. Well, and it makes you want to flip it back over, you know? Yes. Where you are going to get that and you're going to get it all over again. Yeah, totally. And that's it. That is Ingve Malmsteen's Rising Force. Uh, what a great pick. Well, I'm really, you. really happy that you... <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you picked Ingve, and I'm also happy that you picked this album. I think this was an awesome one to go back. Especially for me, it was a great one to go back and really dig into, because it's not the one that I would normally pick up um, of his stuff. But yeah, great, great stuff. Yeah, no, I say, I... I as I say, it's only in the last maybe five years or so that I've really come to like this album. You know, I came to Ingve late, as it were, just because I had dismissed him, uh, partly because of his behaviour, but also partly because of the whole, you know, the fret wanking and shredding stuff, which I'm not massively into. And it was only when I fully gave this album a proper listen, and again, gave it my full attention, that I realised, oh, actually, a lot of the album isn't like that. And this is far more similar to a classical album that happens to be played on guitar uh, than to, say, a Joe Satriani album, who I'm afraid I'm still not a fan of and never have been. Um, you know, respect the man, but just not a fan of his compositions. Whereas this, it's like, actually, yeah, yeah, I can get into this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point, right? Because we talk about some of these other guys like Vi and, and Satriani, and I... Uh, Surfing with the Alien is the Satriani album that immediately comes to mind Everybody for me. Knows, yeah, yeah. Which I think does, uh, for, for me personally, does hold together as a solo album that I enjoy listening to all the way through. Steve Vai, I never totally got into his solo stuff. I much prefer when he was with David Lee Roth and the stuff with Whitesnake. Um, Paul Gilbert, again, I'm going to save that discussion for another time because I think he is criminally underappreciated. Um, as a guitar player and just like should, should be much more well-known than he is. Um, but yeah, like this isn't, if I, if I want to listen to a, an instrument, a mostly instrumental album from a virtuoso guitar player, this Ingve is the one that comes to mind because of the fact that everything is turned to 11. Yeah. You know, well, the fact that, you know, like if I'm going to go in for that, it's like, like Ingve said, why do it halfway? <laughs> well and also because as we said nobody else is doing what he does like i'm not an aficionado of these kinds of guys so you could play me probably not loving the alien obviously because people know that one but you could play me a random joe satriani album and a random steve Vai album and i probably wouldn't be able to tell you which one is which but with ingve <laughs> i don't think there's really any mistaking it is there <laughs> right you wouldn't hear a cut and be like who is that yeah exactly <laughs> it's like oh that sounds like i'd be surprised if it wasn't Ingve, right like because you'd be like damn um, yeah, right <laughs> but yeah and for people who love like steve Vai and satriani and, and guys like that or or other guitar virtuosos that you feel like you know should be mentioned in those conversations like in the comments of this episode like put a clip of you know yeah, what yeah. W- what you think is a good example of um their style you know and what makes them 
uh, really unique and or just what you love about them. And I'm always up to check that out. Yeah, in general, I have a hard time getting into instrumental albums. And I don't go back to them frequently as a, uh, unless to your point, like I'm putting something on. But most of the time, if I'm just going to put on something in the background to listen to, it, it's usually just like jazz that I'll put oh, on right. when I'm working and stuff like that. Um, mostly instrumental uh, jazz and just kind of listen to that. But yeah, this, this to me, this Ingve music, his instrumental stuff is not something that I would put on when I'm trying to write. Like in the background, <laughs> because it's too, it's too busy, you know, it's, it's too, too attention like, grabbing. Yeah. yeah, it is too attention. It's exactly right. Which I, I think mission accomplished on Ingbe's part, right? Because that's exactly what he wants. Yeah, um, well, yeah. God, he, yeah. Can he you wants, imagine how offended he'd be at the notion that he's background music? He would never, <laughs> right? He would never. And I think it goes against his mission statement of, right? Of, of this obsession with doing this the best, right? Is he's doing, he's doing this stuff in a way that you have to pay attention to it. And so, yeah, I wouldn't, he just, in, in for that reason, which I think he's successful at, I can't have this be background music to anything. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a really fun volume. Uh, I mean, yeah. we started all the way back with Rat. That was the start sure the heck of uh, did. volume six. Uh, and yeah, we've been through like Nightwish and Winger. God, this was the Winger volume. Um, We've done Trivium and Alice in Chains at last, Rammstein, uh, Venom, Wasp. Good Lord. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been Did a we real... do Trivium in this? Yeah, uh, yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, in the Court of the Dragon was volume six. Yeah, I know. Holy crap. Yeah. Time flies, doesn't it? When, when was the first episode of this volume? What date? Oh, that I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to look back at the website. It's interesting, yeah. though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, hang on, though. You know, I can do that. We Since do have we're a website. here. Yeah. While we're here, we'll <laughs> we just do double have a website. It. Let's have a look. <laughs> we can uh, check those things. Yeah. Volume six, track one, Rat was March 2022. Okay. <laughs> and we've had 14 episodes plus this bonus. Yeah. You know, I think we've mostly stuck to about one a month for this volume with a couple of exceptions. But uh, yeah, it was a while ago. And yeah, the Trivium album. Yeah. Because I remember, uh, was that? august last year so that was okay. just over a year ago because i remember listening to that album on a train journey and making some notes on it before we recorded the album because i uh, think that album came out in 21 right late 21 i'd have to look back something at it but like yeah, that, yeah it was definitely yeah. still sticking with me by that point for yeah. sure but yeah this has been a a real interesting volume i think with a lot of contrast and a lot of ups and downs uh, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, as always, we will take a short break. I mean, like I say, we only put out an episode about once a month anyway. Um, so we'll probably just take an extra month off <laughs> before we come back with volume seven. Um, but uh, we will be return. There will be a volume seven. Uh, and in the meantime, yeah, go to the Facebook group. As I say, facebook.com slash group slash thrash it out. As Brian said, you don't need to be a patron to join the group and take part. But uh, so pop along there. Tell us what you thought of this episode or past episodes. You know, there's a couple of people in the group who are who have only just discovered us and are now sort of going back through, uh, you know, the episodes from eight years ago or nine years ago, God, however long ago it was now, uh, when we first started. And so that's always interesting as well to hear people's uh, reactions to stuff that were recorded many, many years ago. Um, and it's just a great community where you get to hear lots of new music and talk about metal with people who aren't behaving like dicks. Isn't that fun? It uh, is. 
remember that if you enjoy the show, please do spread the word. Tell your friends, rate us on iTunes and Google Play. And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out where you can become a patron and get to take part in the polls for listener choices. And yes, possibly get randomly selected for a backstage pass as well. You can go to that website, which is thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to all the previous episodes and links to our email and Twitter or X. I refuse to call it that. Um, and get in touch with us, you know, find us around online. We're both around. It's fine. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll see you in a couple of months time for the start of volume seven, whatever that will be. Can't wait. I really can't. And in the meantime, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. Okay. Dude, I, I'm freaking ready. All right. Oh, wait. No, I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs>